The reading this morning is taken from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 27, verses 11 to 26. And this can be found on page 998 of the Church Bibles. Meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied. When he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate asked him, Don't you hear the testimony they are bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor. Now it was the governor's custom at the festival to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. At that time they had a well-known prisoner whose name was Jesus Barabbas. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, Which one do you want me to release to you? Jesus Barabbas or Jesus who is called the Messiah? For he knew it was out of self-interest that they had handed Jesus over to him. While Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him this message. Don't have anything to do with that innocent man, for I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. Which of the two do you want me to release to you, asked the governor. Barabbas, they answered. What shall I do then with Jesus, who is called the Messiah, Pilate asked. They all answered, Crucify him. Why? What crime has he committed, asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, Crucify him. When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It is your responsibility. All the people answered, His blood is on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas to them, for he had Jesus, but he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, everyone. All right, you're alive. Always a good sign. <laughs> I hope you're in uh, good health and good spirits. It's great to be in church together this morning, I think, uh, and I hope you think that as well. Hey, just before we uh, get down to business, I do want to commend that the men's ministry night to all the gents here. Uh, it really will be a good night, if you, especially if you're not in a small group or you don't get much of an opportunity beyond Sundays to be involved in stuff. Why don't you make it a plan to come along on uh, Wednesday night? And if you're married to a man, why don't you... Tell the old man to get off the couch and come on out to church. It will be a, uh, a really worthwhile night. Uh, ladies, I know there's some of you who would like to come yourself, and uh, we will tape it so you will have access to that night. <laughs> That's a nice way of saying you actually can't come. Anyway, let's, uh, let's pray, because we need God's help, uh, and then we'll get into it. Heavenly Father, thank you for your goodness, and we do thank you for the, this particular part of Matthew's Gospel and how it testifies to Jesus. And we want to be people who learn from him so that we become more like him uh, and that he might be glorified as a consequence. Amen. 
identity theft uh, is a big problem these days, isn't it? Uh, I've been robbed before, and they've taken just about everything. And the truth is, just about anything gets nicked, it's okay, it can be replaced. But if somebody steals your identity, that is going to be a big problem. Did you know this? Uh, In 2009, a study was put out in the the States that said 13% of victims of identity theft had their identity stolen from someone they knew. Did you realise that? I didn't realise that. I read about an example during the week. There was this uh, lady called Wendy Brown. She was in her mid-30s, and she had a 15-year-old daughter at a high school in another state. And uh, Wendy, poor Wendy, she felt like she'd really missed out on the, the high school experience, especially the chance to be a cheerleader. What to do? What to do? This is what she thought. I know, I'll enrol myself in high school again as my 15-year-old daughter. And that's exactly what Wendy Brown did. And so she enrolled in classes and began attending cheerleading practices before school started. She was given a cheerleader's locker, which as I understand it is a big thing over there. And she even went to a pool party at the cheerleading coach's house. I mean, she was living the dream. And even though she, and I quote at this stage, looked like a world-weary truck driver with a smoker's growl, she got away with the roost because her basic demeanour was that of a high school girl. In fact, she was only sprung when her check that paid for the cheerleading uniform bounced. Otherwise, she'd probably still be shaking her pom-poms, I guess. You think you know who someone is, don't you? And then something just takes you by surprise. They were not who you thought they were. They had a different identity. And our passage today is all about identity, especially the the identity of Jesus. Who is he really? And of course, that begs the follow-up question of who are we in relation to him? Well, we're in the second week of our little series from Matthew's Gospel in the lead up to Easter. It's called Footsteps of the Cross. Last week, we saw Jesus speak surely of his betrayal and his death and wrestle with obedience to the plan that climaxed with his debt before he finally submitted himself to that plan with those wonderful words, yet not as I will, but as you will, Heavenly Father God. But today we see Jesus tried, and we see him arrested. And in seeing those things, we actually see something at the very core of Jesus' identity, and ours too. Well, let's get started. First thing we see, Jesus is tried. And the question is, who is Jesus? Is he king or is he criminal? There are other kind of subsidiary questions of identity, which we'll cover as well. But that's the main one. Is he king or the king or is he a common criminal? Now, having finished last week in the Garden of Gethsemane, just outside Jerusalem on the last night of Jesus' earthly life, we pick up the story today of Jesus' arrest. Judas, the betrayer, leads a crowd of soldiers and the temple guards and others to Jesus. And Judas addresses him as rabbi, as teacher. It's deeply ironic, but also a true indication of who Jesus is. And then he kisses him, which is the cue to have Jesus seized and arrested. And the crowd take Jesus to Caiaphas. He's the high priest's place. And actually, there's two trials in this section of Matthew's Gospel. There is this kind of trial of sorts before 
the Jews at night in Caiaphas's place, where the whole Sanhedrin, that's the Jewish kind of religious court, had convened. That's the kind of Jewish trial, the religious trial, if you like. And then there's another trial before Pilate, the Roman governor, the political trial, you might want to call it. But in this first trial, the kind of religious, the, the Jewish trial before Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin at night time, you, you read it and you're not even certain that it's a legit trial. Certainly by the 2nd century AD, it was illegal to try somebody at night. But if you read through the verses, and I hope you have your Bibles there, 26 verse 57 to 68, it really looks like a bit of an ad hoc scramble as they try to figure out what charge they're going to nail Jesus on and, and what tactic they're going to come up with to take Jesus to the Roman governor because it was only the Roman governor who could hand down the death sentence. So, what do these twin trials show us about who Jesus really is? Well, we've already seen, somewhat ironically, with the Judas kiss, that Jesus is teacher, rabbi. And as we see him silent before his Jewish accusers, have a look, 26 verse 63... And then again in chapter 27, verse 12, giving no answer. Or 27, verse 14, making no reply. We're supposed to see him as the fulfillment of an ancient prophecy way back in Isaiah 53, verse 7, where God's great suffering servant is likened to a lamb, led to the slaughter and being silent, not opening his mouth. So he is both rabbi, teacher, and suffering servant in fulfillment of that ancient prophecy. But it's true in these verses, he also identifies himself as nothing short of God. Isn't that right? Isn't that ultimately what gets Caiaphas, the high priest, in such a twist? It's not until Caiaphas charges Jesus under oath before the living God to answer that question, are you the king? And when he does, in chapter 26, verse 63, this is what Jesus says. I say to all of you, from now on you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Now that's a pretty clear claim to divinity based on a hugely important chapter of the Old Testament, Daniel chapter 7. And its significance is not lost on the high priest. Like remarkably and unusually, he tears his clothes and his robe at the alleged blasphemy as Jesus claims to be equal with God himself. So, teacher, suffering servant, equal with God. All features of his identity which we see in today's account. But really, the main question before us is, king or criminal? Is Jesus king or criminal? And I think we kind of understand the idea of criminal pretty well. But um, my thinking is that we have a rather diluted understanding of king. And that's partly due to democracy, the kind of process that we were all involved with yesterday, where we effectively choose who rules over us. And where there are like quite strict limitations of that rule. Partly, though, I think we just have a really diluted association with that word king. I mean, we have a basketball team in our city called the Sydney Kings, and they keep losing. And I don't know if you've seen that um, commercial on TV for King Furniture. Have you seen that one? Where the guy keeps dropping a bowling ball on a couch. You're like, what's that got to do with it? And there's shops like um, King of Knives, and Donut King, and Burger King. And you think, 
Well, there's no real king attached to any of those, is there? It's not like there's a really wise and powerful donut or cheeseburger or something like that that rules all the others. I mean, the king bit really just means we've got knives here. We've got donuts and burgers. I've had to do a, uh, some study this semester, and the subject is on the 16th century English Reformation. And I know what you're thinking. You really wish that you were me, right? I understand that. But uh, you look at the life of King Henry VIII, and boy, that helps you understand just the concept of king. Because he doesn't own a shop, rules a kingdom. And what he says goes, and he's king. And you and I would be mere subjects. We would approach him with great trepidation, and we dare not cross him because he will have your head. Quite literally, as it turned out, in fact, with two of his wives and a number of his closest advisors and friends. Now, when we ask that question, is Jesus king or criminal, we're not suggesting at all that he's as capricious or as cruel as Henry VIII. But we are suggesting that to be king means you have power and authority to rule. So who is this man, Jesus? Is he king or criminal? Matthew, it seems to me, is a great pains to uh, point out in the account of Jesus' trials that Jesus is innocent. He is no criminal. Before the Sanhedrin, have a look in chapter 26, verse 59. They were looking for false evidence against Jesus so they could put him to death. In the very next verse, it says they couldn't find the false evidence, the smoking gun to put Jesus away, even though many false witnesses came forward. So in front of that kind of Jewish court, Jesus is presented as innocent. And before we get to that Roman political trial, Judas appears once more in view. And seeing Jesus condemned, Matthew 27 verse 3 tells us that Judas was just filled with remorse. Not necessarily repentance, but remorse. And he says these words, I have sinned, for I have betrayed innocent blood. And then he dramatically and desperately throws the money that he paid for Jesus' betrayal back into the temple and goes out and hangs himself in wretched forlornness. I have betrayed innocent blood. And then before Pilate, the uh, Roman governor, there are a number of intriguing indications of Jesus' innocence, as well as some really half-hearted and futile attempts to have him cleared. You know, Matthew's Gospel is the only one which records Pilate's wife having this disturbing and unsettling dream about Jesus. You remember the message that she sends to her husband Pilate in verse 19? Don't have anything to do with that innocent man. And that must have worried Pilate even further because in the previous verse it tells us that he senses that Jewish religious officials have only brought Jesus to him out of envy, self-interest, They feared they were losing standing and influence at the hand of this untrained Galilean carpenter and his ragtag bunch of disciples. Both Pilate and his wife knew that Jesus was innocent, which concerned them, but just not enough to have him released. And uh, boy, Pilate's attempts to have Jesus freed, well, they are as futile futile as they are half-hearted, aren't they? Twice, 
He tries to have the maddened crowd decide in favour of Jesus. Twice the crowd, stirred up by the religious officials, shout down those attempts and indicate they would prefer to have a notorious criminal called Barabbas, a known murderer, an insurrectionist, we would probably call him a terrorist, released in favour or rather than Jesus, who Pilate concedes has done nothing wrong. I mean, there really is just something compelling, isn't there? As these two accused men stand before the crowd. Barabbas, did you know this? Means son of the father. That's what his name means. And then there's the one called Christ, who is the son of the father. Both of them with the name Jesus, which means the Lord saves. It's as though Pilate is asking the crowd, which son of the father do you choose? Which Jesus? The murderer? The insurrectionist, the notorious criminal, is he going to be the one you choose as saviour? Or the one called Christ? The one who has done nothing wrong? The innocent one? But of course a frenzied crowd is not given to logic any more than it's given to empathy. And so they shout, give us Barabbas. Crucify the Christ. And though Pilate literally washes his hands in front of the crowd in verse 24. How can he really be innocent when he releases a murderer and hands Jesus over to be flogged and crucified? No, the truth is Jesus is the only innocent here. And so he's no criminal despite being handed over to death. He's king. And actually working backwards from that point, we see uh, the soldiers to whom Jesus is handed over Chapter 27, verse 27 to 31, in front of the whole company of soldiers in the praetorium, that's kind of the, the, uh, the governor's headquarters, they dress Jesus up as king in a mock outfit, fancy dress, a scarlet robe across his already bloodied back, a twisted crown of thorns jammed onto his head, jeering him in between blows to his face. Hail, king of the Jews. Hail the king, they say. Of course, you see his kingship more uh, plainly established as Pilate asks him, are you the king of the Jews? I want to know that. And the reply is, yes, you have said so, or yes, it is as you say. It's kind of clear there. And perhaps even more convincingly, before Caiaphas, when the high priest charges Jesus under oath by the living God to answer whether he is the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God, Messiah and Christ, it's the same word and same title, just in different languages. Son of God, they are all kingly kind of titles. They are all speaking of the long-awaited king who would come to rescue the people of God from the forces which oppressed them. Are you that king? Asks Caiaphas. The long-awaited king sent by God. Under oath, Jesus says, you have said so. Or again, yes, it is as you say. You read that little last bit of chapter 26, you realize that Jesus totally uh, reinterprets their understanding of king. His will be a kingdom, not of this world, a kingdom of great spiritual power with nothing short of the authority of God as he sits at the right hand of God and comes to judge all the world with all of God's authority and power. In other words, Jesus saying, I am king for sure, but it is not like you think. And it's unlike anything you have ever seen or could even imagine. You have said so. It is as you say, 
but entirely greater than you mean. That question of identity. Is Jesus king or is he criminal? Could not be clearer from the accounts of Jesus' trials. He's most certainly king. That conclusion that we draw about Jesus' identity actually opens up the question of our identity too. Did you get that? If Jesus is king over God's kingdom and he rules with an irresistible spiritual power, what does that make us? What does that say about our identity? What does that say about who we are? It seems to me that we tend to think of our identity in pretty narrow and real kind of ground level terms, don't we? I don't know if you've heard that saying, he was born a man, but he died a doctor. Just means that his profession was so important that, uh, and all encompassing to him that it's kind of all he saw himself as. It became all who he was. It was the sum total of his identity. <laughs> I once heard about a man, and uh, he died, and on his tombstone were written four immortal words. He was an accountant. <laughs> Don't you love that? He was an accountant. I mean, I used to be an accountant. I still think that's a depressing thing. All you can say about this guy is what he did for a living. But lots of people get their identity from their occupation, don't they? I mean, that could be you this morning. Of course, it may not be your occupation. Uh, I was talking to a lady in her 30s the other day, and uh, she said that she was a Ravenswood girl. Ravenswood, Ravenswood this kind of posh um, girl school in the North Shore. And I thought, my goodness, you look a bit too old to be at school still, because she was speaking in the present tense. And I thought, look, there is the chance that she was just un unusually kind of um, you know, dense and kept repeating year after year after year in the hope that she'll finally you know, graduate and maybe this year could be the year. But in truth, she actually thought that where she went to school 20 years ago was her identity, or at least a major part thereof. And, you know, if it's not your job or the school you went to or the school you're sending your kids to or some other thing like that, maybe it's your family or your friends from which you derive your identity. Here's the truth, though. Doctors and accountants die. And you leave school. And even the most prestigious ones fall from grace, don't they? And families become estranged. And friends move on, and if any or all of that happens, who are you really then? You need to know, don't you? And I would say that fundamental to working out our identity as human beings is going to have to go beyond those really narrow and kind of temporary ideas. We're going to need to cast our gaze upon God and our place in his eternal landscape. Or in other words, we need to work out our identity in relation to Jesus, who is not only innocent, but is also king of an eternal spiritual kingdom. How can we possibly do that? One of the ways, especially when you're looking at gospel narratives, kind of Bible stories, is just to think about which characters in the story you're best represented by. Now, it doesn't always work. You think of the story of David and Goliath. We always think we're David. Ah, we'll get you. Whereas we're probably the chicken Israelites, aren't we, that are hiding in the background. So it doesn't always work. Uh, but let's think about this story. Could you be like the disciples? Chapter 26, verse 56. All flee at the sight of trouble. 
Well, it didn't work out too well for them, did it? Uh, Peter hears that, that wretched rooster crowing for the third time, and he went outside and wept bitterly. Judas realizes the error of his way and thinks of us. There's just no turning back. And of course, it might not be that desperate for you, but do you ever find yourself a little bit like them? Backing out of conversations that steer towards the gospel? When the name of Jesus comes up, you find yourself changing the topic of discussion. Could that be you? Maybe you're uh, more like the Jewish religious officials or the Roman soldiers. And despite the fact you're in church today, you're actually angry with Jesus or you hate his influence over society or the people in your life who are Christians. In, in my former role as a youth minister, I was always surprised by the change in parents who kind of sent their kids along to youth group because they thought it would be good for them. And then when their kids started to take it seriously, the parents hated it. I mean, maybe you're a bit like that. You just think Jesus and his message and his ethic is way too much influence over society and the people that you know. Or, uh, you know, you could be a little bit more like the soldiers, mocking Jesus. I mean, better than getting angry, you think, is just turning it all into a joke. And it's pretty easy these days because Jesus isn't here to defend himself and, and his people, well, like non-retaliation, turning the other cheek, it's part of their spiritual DNA. You like the Jewish religious officials or the soldiers? Maybe in your heart of hearts, you're actually more like Pilate, the Roman governor. You sense there's something to Jesus. There really, there's something otherworldly about him. Maybe you've read one of the Gospels. Maybe you've read all of them. Maybe you read the whole Bible cover to cover. And you realize that he was innocent, just like Pilate's wife did and that's there's something almost disturbing about that and although you're drawn to him in some ways when you realize that being connected to Jesus might cost you something you drop him you're pretty sure that Jesus is the truth but it's just not expedient at the moment to attach yourself to him not seriously anyway so which character do you think best represents you is it the fleeing disciples the conspiring Jewish religious officials, the mocking soldiers, the wily, savvy Roman governor. Which is it for you? You know, it's uh, actually none of them. None of them, not in the first place. Not of first importance anyway. There's one other character in the story who best represents us. His name's Barabbas. Jesus Barabbas. Not because you and I are necessarily criminals, insurrectionists, rebels, murderers, although we might be, but because we're all guilty before God for loving everything and loving anything more than God, though he is due our all. Because we've all turned to our own ways rather than turning to his ways. Because we've all rejected God in our lives and in the deep attitudes of our hearts, even though he is the giver of all good things. And though he is a heavenly father who really loves the people that he has made, Barabbas best represents us because he was guilty. But the other Jesus, the one called the Messiah, took his place so that the guilty went free and the innocent went to the cross. You look at these two Jesuses 
And it is a wonderful, wonderful picture of the gospel, isn't it? The innocent takes the punishment that was due to the guilty, and the guilty walks free. So that we are declared not guilty, though we are guilty. And Jesus dies on the cross for our sins, though he was entirely innocent. When I was growing up, there was this uh, fellow called Nathan Tasker. And he's a musician, budding kind of musician. And he's gone on to make lots of records and lives now in Nashville. He's doing that kind of country music Christian thing over there. But on one of his earliest albums that you can't get anymore, he has this song and it's called Call Me Barabbas. And the song just recognises that this is the character in the story that best represents us, Barabbas. Here's uh, some of the lyrics. So call me Barabbas, because that's who I am. All I deserve has been given to him, capital H. The guilty set free, the innocent must die. I can't forget the death of that man. It set free Barabbas. That's who I am. Do you know what I think? I think I can see Barabbas. There. 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 And here. Call us Barabbas. That's who we are. Set free from guilt, condemnation, penalty, punishment, judgment, estrangement from God because the innocent one died on the cross in my place for my sins. Call us Barabbas. When we think of kings, we realize that the way to relate to kings is to be their subjects. It's true, isn't it? Willing, humble, obedient, maybe even brave subjects of the king, rather than cowardly skinning out on them like the disciples, mocking them like the soldiers, hating them like the religious officials, distancing ourselves from them like Pilate when it starts to cost us. And being willing, humble, courageous, obedient subjects is the way that we relate to King Jesus because he is king over an eternal spiritual kingdom that will never pass away. And you know what? That will be even more plain and pronounced with his resurrection from the dead that we're going to look at in one week's time. But actually the most striking thing about the Christian life is not what we do for the king. It's what the king has done for us. We are his subjects, there's no doubt about it, but also objects. Objects of his great and wonderful mercy. The guilty who have been set free as the innocent one dies. We are subjects, of course. Humble, brave, willing, obedient when we're at our best. But in the first instance, not subjects, but objects. Objects of his great and wonderful mercy. And friends, today is a day to turn back and to trust in that King Jesus. Whomever you are, whatever state whatever spiritual state you find yourself in today, wherever you happen to be on your journey of discipleship with him, today's a day to turn back, to trust and to believe. As we finish up, uh, they say that identity theft is a big problem now in our day and age. You can replace just about anything, but if somebody steals your identity, well, They also say that 13% of victims of identity theft 
had their identity stolen by someone they know. You realize that Jesus has done just that for us. Though our king and innocent, he took our identity as guilty and died on the cross. And like the Barabbases that we are, we walk free. Object before subject. And brothers and sisters, that is the only way that we can ever hope to walk following Jesus in the footsteps of the cross. Let's pray to him now. Father God, we do want to thank you for the Lord Jesus. We thank you for these accounts of his life. We recognize unmistakably that he is not criminal, he was innocent, but he is also king. And Lord, we recognize that we are his subjects and help us to be brave, willing, obedient and humble subjects. But speak deeply into our hearts so that we would always know we are first objects, objects of your great mercy and grace that is so clearly shown in the death of of your beautiful Son, in whose name we pray. Amen.